In the annals of British crime, Percy, Lefroy, Mapleton plays an important role. Not only was he the first recipient of Britain's first composite sketch to appear on a wanted poster, his execution was graphically documented in a newspaper article, and it makes for a fascinating but grisly read. In today's episode, I invite you to a hanging. Welcome back to the Historical Crimes and Criminals podcast. I'm Steve, your host. On the afternoon of the 27th of June, 1881, 64-year-old Isaac Frederick Gold, a retired bakery manager, got the express train going from London Bridge Station to his home in Brighton. Gold had entered a first-class smoking compartment in the third carriage and was later joined in the compartment by 21-year-old Percy Lefroy Mapleton. When the train arrived at Preston Park Station, Mapleton was observed getting out of the carriage in a distressed state and covered in blood. He had lost his hat, collar and tie and had a gold watch chain hanging from his shoe Giving a card, which carried the name Arthur Lefroy, Mapleton complained that he'd been attacked during the journey by two men who had hit him on the head, knocking him out. Richard Gibson, a ticket collector at Preston Park Station, accompanied Mapleton for the rest of the journey to Brighton, where Mapleton told Henry Ascombe, the station master, they had been shot and wounded during the journey. Asked about the gold chain that had been seen hanging from his shoe, he replied he'd put it there for safety. From the station offices, he was taken to Brighton Police Station, where he made an official complaint against his attackers, even offering a reward for their capture. Constable Howland interviewed Mapleton for details of his alleged attackers before sending him to the county hospital for treatment where his wounds turned out to be quite superficial. Suspicious that such a slight wounds could cause so much blood, the examining doctor wanted to detain him, but Mapleton suddenly announced that he had an urgent appointment in London. Having bought a new collar and tie, went to Brighton Station, where increasingly dubious police took him into an office and searched him. They found two Hanoverian medals in his pocket, which he denied all knowledge of. Meanwhile, the carriage had been shunted into a siding and examined, which revealed three bullet marks and other signs of a fierce struggle, including blood on the carriage footboard, mat, door handle, as well as on a handkerchief and newspapers. Investigators also found coins similar to those found on Mapleton, the authorities still had no reason to detain Mapleton 
and he was escorted by Detective Sergeant George Holmes to the home of Mapleton's sister at Cathcart Road in Wallington in Surrey, where he was a lodger. Meanwhile, whilst walking through Balcombe Tunnel, railway workers found the body of an elderly man, later identified as Isaac Gold. He had been shot and stabbed, and near his body they found a knife smeared with blood. His gold watch and chain and a large sum of money had been stolen. The station master at Balcombe immediately sent the following telegram. Man found dead this afternoon in tunnel here. Name on papers, I gold. He is now lying here. Reply quick. News of the body passed along the lines and at Three Bridges Railway Station, the station master told Detective Sergeant Holmes about it. Holmes was instructed by telegram from Brighton Police not to let Mapleton out of his sight. However, having arrived at the boarding house in Wallington, Mapleton told Holmes that he wanted to change his clothes and persuaded him to wait outside. Mapleton then left the house by another exit and disappeared. The hunt to recapture Mapleton was notable for the appeal by C.E. Howard Vincent, director of the CID, to the British press for their assistance. The Daily Telegraph published the following description of Mapleton. Age 22, middle height, very thin, sickly appearance, scratches on throat, wounds on head, probably clean-shaved, low felt hat, black coat, teeth much discoloured. He is very round-shouldered and his thin overcoat hangs in awkward falls about his spare figure. His forehead and chin are both receding. He has a very slight moustache and very small dark whiskers. His jawbones are prominent, his cheeks sunken and sallow and his teeth fully exposed when laughing. His upper lip is thin and drawn inwards. His eyes are grey and large. His gait is singular. He is inclined to slouch, and when not carrying a bag, his left hand is usually in his pocket. He generally carries a crutch stick. More importantly, however, the Daily Telegraph published an artist impression of Mapleton created from a description provided by someone who knew him. This was the first time that a composite picture was used in this way by a newspaper. It created enormous public interest and resulted in erroneous Mapleton sightings all over the country. In a meeting at London Bridge Station, detective officers questioned all the railway staff involved in the case. Coroner when Edward Baxter, who was later to be involved as the coroner during the Jack the Ripper murders in 1888, opened an inquest on Isaac Gold on the 29th of June, 1881. The inquest lasted several days, during which Detective Sergeant Holmes and other officers involved in the case's preliminary stages were mauled in the witness box for inefficiency. A verdict of willful murder 
against was returned. The railway company then offered a substantial reward for information leading to Mapleton's arrest. And on 8th of July 1881, Mapleton was finally located in a house at 32 Smith Street in Stepney, where he was lodging under the name of Park. He was found because a telegram he'd sent to his employer requesting that his wages be forwarded to that address. He had kept his blinds down in his room all day and gone out only at night to avoid detection. The police found his still bloodstained clothing in the room and he was found to have exchanged some counterfeit coins and pawned a revolver. At his trial at Maidstone Assizes, he was found guilty with the jury deliberating for just 10 minutes. It was revealed that during his trial, at the time of the murder, Mapleton had gone desperately short money and had gone to London Bridge with the intention of robbing a passenger. He had hoped to find a female victim, but finding none suitable, had settled on the elderly Mr Gold. He was sentenced to death. And on the 30th of November, 1881, the following article was read by Daily Telegraph readers. Just as the clock was striking half past eight this morning, the little wicket gate of the lodge at Lewes Jail was opened by a warder for the purpose of admitting some dozen and a half gentlemen, who until then had lingered in the garden which belongs to the prison. A bright sunshine had succeeded a gusty night and was rapidly driving away the mists that still hung over the South Down Hills. At last we came to the yard, the one which we were particularly bound, a large irregular space, bounded on one side by the prison and on three other sides by high walls and containing at one end a row of celery trenches carefully banked up. At the end, however, facing that where the vegetables were grown and closest to the corner of the prison were two objects which forced themselves upon the view. In the right-hand corner, as we looked upon them, rose a couple of thick black posts with a huge crosspiece from which dangled a staple and a long thick rope in the other, about ten yards distance, an open grave. As we filed into the yard, I noticed that we were being one by one saluted by a somewhat diminutive man clothed in brown cloth and wearing in his arms a quantity of leather straps. There was nothing apparently in common between the grave and the gallows and the man, and for the moment, I imagined that the individual who had raised his hat and greeted each arrival with a good morning gentleman was a groom who had chanced to pass through the place bearing a horse's bridle and headgear and was anxious to be civil. But to my horror, the man in the brown coat proved to be no stranger wandering around in the manner I pictured, but the designer of the horrible structure on the right and the official most closely connected with that and the open grave. William Marwood it was, who thus 
bade us welcome, and the straps on his arms were nothing less than his tackle. He was the executioner. I confessed a shudder as I looked upon the girdle and arm pieces that had done duty on so many a struggling wretch, and half expected that the man who carried them would have attempted to hide them. But no such thing. To him, they were the implements of high merit, and together with the gallows formed what he now confidently informed his hearers was an excellent arrangement. It was evident that in the gallows and the tackles too, he had more than a little pride. He was even ready to explain, with much volubility, the awful instruments of his craft. That rope that you see there, quoth he, as he gazed admiringly at the crossbar of black wood, is two and a half inches round. I hung nine with it. It's the same I used yesterday. Nor does he manifest the quaver of a muscle as he went on to point certain peculiarities of design in his machinery of death. Had he been exhibiting a cooking apparatus, patient incubator, or a corn mill, he could not have been more complacent or more calm. It's the running noose, you see, said he, with a thimble that fits under the chin. The pit's all new, he went on to say. New brickwork, you will see, and made on purpose. A glance revealed that it was new, as new as the grave, formed after the ideas of Marwood himself. It certainly appeared to be complete as an engine of death. It consisted of two pits connected with each other, one a broad and the other a narrow oblong, the broad one being immediately under the gallows and covered by a black trapdoor that opened in the centre and was only supported by a long bolt, the other containing a brick staircase that led under the gallows. Above the trapdoor, or rather the right-hand side of it, and close by the gallow tree, was a lever, something like the one you see the switch handle on railway lines connecting with the vault below the trapdoor. The rope that hung from the crossbar was coiled up, and although it had done its duty so frequently, as Marwood said, seemed nearly new. To Marwood, the whole thing evidently seemed a triumph of art, and as he moved hither and thither, explaining the superiorities of his design, he evidently expected that his handiwork would meet approval. All the while, the bell dismally tolled. At length, a warder came battling up with a bundle of keys in his hand and beckoned to Marwood. It wanted about ten minutes to nine o'clock and the doomed man was waiting. Ready for you, remarked the warder, and with an expectant look, Marwood gathered up his tackle and followed. With an easy skip and a hop, as though we were answering an agreeable call, he left us and disappeared towards the cell of the man about to die. I pictured him as he would move along the corridor, present himself at the portal of the condemned cell, and with that smile on his face and that ready step, I wondered mightily how he, the agent of death, could move so briskly. 
and after what fashion he would introduce himself to the human being he was going to strangle. Death is proverbially swift in the guise of Marwood. It moved with appalling celerity. As it chanced, Mapleton Lefroy knew nothing of this and only saw his executioner as the latter with a bow entered the cell. Then it was probably too late for much thought. I hope the rope will not break was the only expression to which he gave utterance, possibly the result of some apprehension from what he'd heard about Marwood's long drop. There was not time for more. The hangman was already busily at work, passing the leather belt around his body, fastening his elbows and wrists, and baring his neck. The bell was tolling, and nine o'clock had nearly come. It was time to be moving. The clergyman and his white surplice was ready. Two warders had already taken their places, one on either side of the condemned. Marwood, with one strap yet unused in his left hand and his right hand firmly fixed on the leather belt that confined his victim, was prepared to move. The under-sheriff, the governor of the jail, the surgeon and the magistrate were all waiting. It was time for the burial service to begin. The corridor echoed forthwith to the sound of the death prayer. Slowly passing through the passage towards the door that led into the yard moved that awful procession. And as the warder unlocked the door which opened close by the scaffold, it emerged into the air. I had chanced to see Lefoy on several previous occasions and notably at the trial, and yet it was a feeling bordering upon curiosity that I now looked upon him as he emerged into the open. There was much that operated against the producing of a favourable impression. He was attired, not as been stated in prison garb, but in a very old suit of greyish tweed. He was tightly pinioned, so tight, I afterwards observed, that his wrists were bruised. His hat was taken off and his hair somewhat disarranged. He had not been shaven for some time and he was hurried along by his executioner at disquieting rate. But apart from all this, there was a pallor on his face so unearthly that he presented the appearance of one who was already dead. And I very much doubt whether but for the presence of the warders on each side of him and the support which he gained from the hangman who pushed him forward, he would have been able to accomplish the distance from his cell to the grave. The words of the clergyman rising and falling upon the ears of the spectators were evidently lost upon him. He did not appear to hear the passing bell, but looked upwards as though in an agony of fear and so stumbled helplessly along. It was not far, only a few score yards in all, but the march to the grave, or rather to the scaffold, seemed terribly painful. All the bravado that had been witnessed in the dock at Maidstone had gone. The terrors of death were in full force upon the heartless culprit. As he approached the scaffold, this was particularly noticeable. He could scarcely take the step which was to place him 
where he had never stood before and from whence he would never step again. And Marwood, who at no instant let go of the belt, was faint once more to push him forward. It was evidently not the moment for ceremony with the hangman, who was now once again very busy placing the tall young man up to whose shoulders his own face scarcely reached, under the cross tree, stooping down to strap up his legs, and then fumbling with a white glazed linen cap, which he now essayed to put over the trembling youth's face. I do not suppose for a moment that Marwood intended to be rough. He was possibly excited and anxious to do everything as expedientially as possible, but it certainly appeared to me that in attempting to fix the cap on Lefoy's head and in pulling it down over his face, he hurt the prisoner somewhat unnecessarily. The worst of this was, however, yet to come. The long rope dangling about Lefroy had now to be adjusted, and the thimble through which the noose ran to be placed beneath his neck. I did not time it. It may have lasted only a few seconds, but to me it seemed appallingly long, while the swaying of Lefroy's body showed the agony he was enduring. I cannot tell you whether the sound of the clergyman's voice, which continued all the while while the preparations went on, was a great consolation to him. His last look, as the white cap was reduced, was lifted heavenwards, his pallid face turned upwards, his lips moving as though in prayer. But as soon as the cap was over, his face began to sway, so much so I expected he would fall before the business was finished. At last, however, all was ready, and Marwood, grasping the hand of his victim, stepped back. There was another awkward pause, apparently for the purpose of allowing the clergyman to finish the sacred invocation in which he was engaged. And then, the lever being pulled back, the trap doors open, and Lefroy falls with a terrible thud into the cavern below. In fact, down ten feet, as was presently shown by the measurement of a tape line, he had dropped the whole weight of his body falling upon his neck, which receiving such a strain was instantly broken so completely that the body never gave so much as one convulsive shudder, but turning half around, hung swaying in the cold morning air, enveloped by a haze of steam rising from the corpse, and showing by the visible disconnection of the vertebrae and by the open hands how sudden death had been. The preliminaries to the hideous spectacle had been as painful in the extreme to the spectators and sufferer alike, but I think the actual death was as merciful as it could well be, if the agony of the two or three minutes from leaving the condemned cell to the fall of the scaffold could be left out of consideration, had there been an assistant to expedite the movement upon the scaffold, or had chloroform another anaesthetic been given to the condemned to lessen the pain of suspense, less fault might have been found with the miserable business. As it was, 
without any feelings other than those of reprobation for the horrible crime to which Lefroy suffered, I felt that the agony of death had been unnecessarily prolonged and that, compared even with the punishment of the guillotine in France, it was a tedious and horrible form of execution. It may too have been fancy that it seemed that the actual falling of the trap doors and the long drop occupied a sensible period, though it is impossible to say how long the two seconds or so thus occupied may have seemed to the person who is thus awfully dispatched. But the whole of the spectacle connected with the Lefroy execution was not over. An inquest had yet to be held on the body of the dead man, and for this purpose a number of the inhabitants of Lewes had been summoned as jurymen. Thus, a little after ten o'clock, we found ourselves spectators of the execution, jail officials, coroner and jurymen convened in the committee room of the prison once more for the purpose of determining how Percy Mapleton Lefroy, now lying, to quote the words of the commission, dead within the precincts of the jail, had come by his end. The jury, sworn in, now proceeded to view the body and were conducted to the infirmary of the jail, the same room in which, by the way, Lefroy was incarcerated prior to his trial. A large apartment containing three or four beds and a bath. Here, on trestles, in a shell coffin, lay the dead body of the man, clad as we saw him when he emerged in the yard where he was executed, with his boots still on in the same grey tweed suit. He had evidently been measured for his coffin while still alive and placed in it but a minute or two before we arrived. A more horrible appearance than the remains presented is difficult to conceive. And, as though to add to the horrors of the scene, it appeared to be the duty of the jurymen to examine the body minutely and by prods and pushes to satisfy their curiosity as to the physique of the dead man. In truth, his dead body did present the appearance of more strength than I supposed, and there remained less cause for wonder in my mind to how he contrived to kill a well-built man as Mr Gold. The viewing over, the jury returned to the rooms and sat there in solemn conclave, whilst the governor of the jail gave evidence of the identity of Lefroy and the surgeon deposed to the effect that the deceased met his death by hanging. And then we filed out into the open air once more in the bright sunlight. The mists had gone from the Sussex hills. There was no more clouds in the blue sky and the day so unusually ushered into us was gladsome as though it had been the herald of spring. Well, I hope you enjoyed that one, and if you did, I'll be back soon with another episode. In the meantime, I've been working hard on a Sherlock Holmes YouTube channel. Long-time listeners of the show will know my passion for Sherlock Holmes, and in that channel, called 
Sherlock Holmes Beyond the Stories. I look at Sherlock Holmes essays, pastiches, and all things Sherlock Holmes beyond the normal canon. If that sounds your cup of tea, check it out. Links on the show notes for today's episode. But until the next episode, bye-bye.